Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death. Welcome to episode 170 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the third episode of March 2016, and our Daikaiju discussion episode for Yamato Takeru, a.k.a. Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon. Joining me here in the studio, we have Brian Cook. What's up, everybody? Rachel Cook is back. Hello there. Charles is here. Hi, everybody. And so is Sane. Cheers. And we are going to be watching this uh, 1994 Heisei fantasy film, actually. Uh, it barely counts as a kaiju film, but it does technically <laughs> count as a kaiju film. We are not going to have any news or any pickled ginger in this episode, but we are going to follow up the discussion with our second round of Monster March Madness eliminations. We're going to start things off with a couple of requests. The first thing we're going to play is actually for Clancy. He wanted to hear a couple of tracks from... Godzilla 1985.
Okay, so we started things off with the main titles and Godzilla vs. the Super X for Clancy. Now, that might sound like too many songs for Clancy just because he's like here in Portland and friends with us, right? <laughs> but uh, all, in all, all in all, it's not that long of too many tracks. So uh, then we followed things up with The Inner Beast Awaken, which is actually from our film tonight. And that, once again, class brings us to our Daikaiju discussion. Every month, the Kaiju cast showcases one film from the giant monster landscape and tasks the listeners with submitting their thoughts, questions, and reviews for the following discussion episode. Thanks to an online tool, I've randomly assigned one film to each month, ensuring that this podcast will keep going for a long, long time. This month, we're looking at 1994's Yamato Takeru, or as it was released here on home video in America, Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon. This movie came out in July of 1994. Space Godzilla was also made the same year, but was released in December of that year. This was directed by Mechagodzilla's Takao Okawara. It was written by Wataru Mimura. And the score was actually uh, from somebody I've never even heard of before named Kyoko Ogino. The movie also stars Masahiro Takashima as Yamato Takeru. Now, you may recognize him from Gunhead. He played Aoki in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and also he was the Super X 3 pilot in Godzilla vs. Destroyer. Yasuko Sawaguchi plays Oto Tachibana. Now, if you're unfamiliar with her, she played Naoko Okamura, the sister in Godzilla 1985. And she was also Erica in Godzilla vs. Biollante very, very briefly at the beginning of the movie. Uh, and the last person I wanted to mention in terms of Yamato Takeru is Hiroshi Abe as Sukiyomi. Uh, he plays Katagiri in Godzilla 2000. He's the guy that basically oh, nice. yells at Godzilla on the rooftop. But more recently for me, I just watched Moon Over Tau. Anybody seen that movie? God, it's no. such a great no. film. He plays uh, a samurai in that film, like one of the main characters. Mm. Anyway, those are the actors that are really in this movie. Apparently, Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon makes an appearance in Onmyoji 2, although I haven't seen it. It doesn't sound like a giant monster movie at all from the description. I've seen the first Onmyoji film. There was a comic a manga called The Godzilla Comic Raids Again by a series of illustrators that include Hurricane Ryu, who was a suit actor, actually. I think I'm reading that correctly. Orochi appears in that comic as an opponent of Godzilla, so I would love to see that sometime. There was also an animated series by the same name, Yamato Takeru, from a company called Nippon Animation that ran from April 9th through December 24th of that same 1994 year. This film, like I said, is not so much a kaiju film. It's more of a fantasy film than what we normally review here on the podcast. This is actually Japanese mythology. There's another film from 1959 called Birth of Japan. It was released here in the States as The Three Treasures. This is a three-hour movie. Uh, not Yamato Takeru. Birth of Japan is a three-hour movie. <laughs> I would never invite you guys over for a three-hour movie here. I, I just want you to know that. show up for a three-hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're interested in Japanese mythology, I suggest tracking it down because it's actually it's very cool to watch, but it is very, very Japanese. Where, you know, a lot of times I say, oh, I think you really have to be Japanese to get this. This movie you're going to watch tonight, Yamato Takeru, you might be saying that to yourself. <laughs> I don't get what's happening here. Maybe I need to be Japanese. If you watched Birth of Japan, you'd be saying that like every 10 minutes. You're like, this is weird. But uh, like I said, that movie was made in 1959, and it stars some of our favorite Showa-era Godzilla actors, Takashi Shimura, Akihiko Harada, Akira Takarada, Jun Tazaki, Akira Kubo, and Kubi Mizuno, and a lot, a lot more. And like I said, 
That movie is much less a tokusatsu film because Orochi in that film makes a brief appearance and he's just a puppet. And uh, literally the last thing I wanted to say before we go over and watch this crazy movie is that apparently someone at Toho had plans to make a sequel to this film. But the box office did not uh, warrant a sequel. So having said that, let's go check out Yamato Takeru, a.k.a. Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon. Cursed by the Elder Gods, banished to the icy depths of space, the ancient evil has returned. A child is born, a prophecy is fulfilled, and now two legendary heroes must face their destiny. From the producers of the original Godzilla, a new landmark in horror is unleashed. An epic that will take you to the dawn of time and the end of creation. A world of miracles and impossible creatures. A battle in which only the strongest will survive. In a time when demons still walk the earth in human form. Only a hero chosen by the gods can deliver mankind from the ultimate darkness. A world of chivalry, beauty, and supreme evil. A new legend is born. A monster is set free. And the future of mankind hangs in the balance as the armies of good and evil wage holy war across the face of the earth. back from watching Yamato Takeru, a.k.a. Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon. Now, before we really get into the discussion, I want to do two things. One, how many times have you seen this, Brian? I've never seen this. this never the first seen time. Yamato Takeru yeah. before. Same here. Never. So, Sane and I... Once, yeah, an extremely yeah. distracted watching of it <laughs> on VHS in, like, 1997. Nice, nice. I'd seen it a few times, but it's not a movie that I go back to repeatedly. Now... Before we talk and have our discussion, I did want to share some thoughts from listener Ayame Chiba, who sent in some very, very cool stuff about this. Like you guys have heard me say many times before, man, I feel like I need to be Japanese. Well, she's Japanese, so she's here (laughs) to actually tell us a little bit about this. So here's what she said. The movie is based on the mythological figure Osu, the second son of the legendary 12th emperor of Japan. Keiko, who may or may not have really existed. His legends are collected in the Kojiki, Japan's oldest written work, which is from 711 AD. 
and the Nihon Shoki, the second oldest, about 720 AD. The movie actually combines many of the legends associated with him and blends them with some legends attributed to the god Susanoo. For example, the part where the man is forced to give up his daughter to be sacrificed to a monster is out of Susanoo's legend and has nothing to do with Yamato killing Kumaso Takeru. In fact, the daughter in the legend is not being sacrificed to a lava monster and is to be given to Orochi. This is what leads to Sasano O's battle with the eight-headed dragon. They also whitewash much of Yamato's character. Now, she's using whitewash as a term here to just mean that he was sort of not as stand-up of a guy as he was in the movie, whereas we use the term a lot as to say, hey, we're going to make those actors white. Right. <laughs> so uh, they also whitewash much of, much of Yamato's character, like many early Japanese heroes, he was a bully and had an arrogant and obnoxious personality. Rather than being sent away from his father at birth, he was only exiled after he killed his brother in a fit of bad temper, terrifying his father. And rather than battling the sea creature, as seen in the movie, he actually insulted the dragon king for no reason, and Yamato's wife, Oto Tachibana, willingly sacrificed herself to the deity to keep Yamato from being struck down. She found the film's connection to the four celestial guardians, the animals also seen in Gamera 3. Very interesting. Yamato's two mentors that accompany him on the journey are named Genbu and Seiryu. I hope I'm saying that right. Genbu means black warrior, the tortoise guardian of the north. In the movie, he even wears a stylized turtle shell on his back. Seiryu means blue dragon, the dragon guardian of the east. The film fudges a bit on the Phoenix Guardian of the South, the Suzaku. Instead of red, they call it the White Bird, since in the Yamato Takeru legend, he transforms into a White Bird upon his death. Or as he does in the film, a Phoenix Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> uh, however, the Issei Shrine Maiden at the shrine where the, where the White Bird is displayed, Oto Tachibana, dons a red battlesuit when she joins Takeru, effectively becoming a Suzaku. And Yamato is Byako, the White Tiger really in this case, the Kirin, a beast, uh, as shown by having the wild spirit. His features look beast-like and a bit feline when the wild spirit takes hold. This is the guardian of the West further reinforced when Yumato says the threat from the West, another beast, the bear, Kumasu Takeru, because Kuma means bear. It's also interesting that near the film's beginning, in Emperor Keiko's throne room, you can see a fancy gold-encrusted carving of the guardian of the North on the wall, the tortoise encircled by the snake. Which, ah, you noticed that. I think I noticed that because I read this before, but <laughs> uh, I didn't think about it at the time. The emperor's court here represents the fifth direction, Earth, the center. And finally, the three weapons of Yamato carries into battle against Orochi are the sword, the jewel, and the mirror. I'm guessing those are the three lights they were talking about. These are the three sacred regalia of Japan, which are symbols of the emperor's legitimacy to this day. The number of items thought to comprise the regalia has fluctuated throughout the centuries, sometimes 10 items, sometimes 8 or less, but now it's set at 3. They may or may not be the original items. The sword was almost certainly lost in a fire or later dropped in the water at the Battle of Dan no... Oh, man, this is interesting. Okay, so or later dropped in the Battle of Dan no Ura in 1185. So if you've ever seen Quidon, the battle from Hochi the Earless. That's what she's talking about. Anyway, uh, no one outside the emperor and high-ranking priests assigned to care for the regalia have ever seen them. They have never been photographed, and no real description exists for them. They might not even exist 
Only the wrapped boxes have been seen and reliable accounts state that they have not been opened in many decades. So if you found any of that interesting, make sure to check out Ayame's article, The Japanese Mythology Behind Gamera 3, and the next issue of G-Fan number 112. Now, having read all that, (laughs) the question I have for you is, does that make the movie make any more sense? I mean, a little more sense to me, but this is still a movie that I am... I I get the basics, right? Like good versus evil kind of stuff, <laughs> but still super confusing to me. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I had read about the three treasures and how the, they're kept to this day and all that kind of stuff. I'd done a little bit of reading actually about the three the three treasures, Birth of Japan, the mm-hmm. other movie. Um but I still felt myself very, very lost. So what about you, Rachel? Yeah, you, same here. I, I read about the film actually earlier today and even reading about it, I got confused and I tried to slowly like read through it. Like, am I just tired or something? Like, why am I not getting this? And, uh, but then I, I also read that a lot of other people felt the same way. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, it's just going to be confusing then. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that it helps a little bit kind of piece together at sure, least some sure. of the symbolism. Um, but yeah, I think overall is super convoluted. I guess the question I would have for, uh, Dr. Chiba is, how much of this stuff just as being Japanese and learning, I'm assuming the same kind of mythology that we would learn about, like I said earlier, I think a listener brought it up, King Arthur, or even to an extent like Paul Bunyan, you know, like these, these myths and these legends explain things that we see in modern day or modern day at the time of the, the writing of those stories. So I, I would imagine it's very similar. Charles, what'd you think? You'd never seen this movie before. I, no, I came in completely blind. I mean, to the point where all I knew is it had something to do with an eight-headed dragon by the title. Good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. so a uh, little disappointed it took so long for it to show up. But outside of that, I, I was fascinated. I, you know, it's it's like you said, you know, I understand the basics, you know, the good and the evil and, and, and what's going on and right. why they're going from point A to point B. All of the minutia, all the detail, I am kind of lost. You know, there's a lot. It is, it, you know, it's, as a film, it kind of has one of those things that sort of bugs me sometimes about Japanese movies or, or, or even just Asian fantasy movies in general, where it's kind of the kitchen sink. They throw everything in there. There's so much stuff in there that if you don't grow up with it, if you know, you don't have that basics, you have no idea what's going on. Just come back to me if you're like, hey, man, I've got three hours in the next couple of weekends. I can watch Birth of Japan because yeah, I think you'll feel even more of that same feeling. Zane, you had seen this before. Yeah. And as I said, I watched it really like out of the corner of one eye working on a model kit like, yeah, yeah. almost 20 years ago. And so I'm like, oh, oh, what's going on? I don't know. That's not a dragon. I don't care. And then finally like kind of concentrating on but being so lost and i'm not going to pretend that i wasn't lost this time too no it's (laughs) Um, definitely confusing it is confusing and what's funny about it is there's a there's a cinema style to it that we don't have in this country and it's linear to a fault where Mm -hmm. it was just like one seed leads into the next and the next with zero explanation you just have to accept that suddenly priestess is going with the prince the Whatever it's like, and then they meet you they, know, the bad guy. They don't question yeah. things that happen 
in the movie. Yeah. No, no exposition. Yeah. None. Yes. Zero. Yeah. Right so on. a character is just introduced. That is who he is. He is an evil warlord. He needs to get in a fight with Prince. <laughs> That's uh, just how it is, yeah, man. That is what it is. <laughs> That's yeah. how we roll <laughs> in ancient Japan. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's a different style of filmmaking that it's like, I don't, I don't imagine probably is even taking place any longer in Japan. I mean, I haven't seen a film like this. I don't know. I you remember know, seeing several 90s movies that yeah. kind of had this so, sure, sort of sure, yeah. cinema verite <laughs> to them. And then, <laughs> but I don't see it anymore, so I just, I don't know if it fell off fashion or know. if the West has influenced enough of Japan's uh, well, film. I, I don't know. I even see it in Western, like, low-budget movies where just inexperienced screenwriting. That's an experience, but this is probably not an experience. I, I imagine this is a company film. And this it is, is big and, but I would actually almost posit that it's inexperience in proper storytelling in movies. And I hate to be the kind of guy to go like, this is the way you tell a movie story. <laughs> but the connection that I like to feel to characters, this movie had none of it. Yeah. If, if, if it was the first time I had watched it and any of those characters had died and not come back to life, <laughs> I just would have been like, Okay, no, whatever well, you know. Yeah. I guess you'll throw another character at yeah. me in five I made minutes. An emotional to connection to this multiple person. times. Yeah, I think a lot of that probably is because it, it is Japanese mythology. So for most people watching it, they probably had a background in it, so sure, it made some yeah. sense. Yeah. Whereas to us, as well, you know, like the like, hero well, getting stabbed through the neck and then dying, and then, yeah, and then he's fine. So that's cool, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's cool for him. Yeah, I guess. It's cool for him. He doesn't die. Uh, yeah, I, it's that connection. I didn't feel that connection. Um, and, you know, my initial thoughts on this is we'd sort of abandoned that normal chat style uh, at the very beginning of this in a sense. But getting back to it, I, you know, I did – I like this movie. But overall, I want to like it more than I can like it. And every time I watch it, the flaws in the film, not even – not even saying this movie's dated because it's filled with beam effects or weird morphing CGI effects. <laughs> like forget those things. The the film as itself, as a film, which this is the kind of thing that as I've gotten older, I've appreciated or not appreciated more is that they just don't know how to tell a story that speaks to me sometimes. And that is exactly what has happened in Yamato Takeru. Well, I know yeah. my problem was that, you know, if this is all, Predestiny, the basically stated at the beginning of the movie, there's never a sense of jeopardy to any character. Sure, not yeah, once. Yeah, like, yeah. well, he is the prince, and he is going to defeat evil, and he will get his three power ups and morph into Mighty Morphin <laughs> Peacock Ranger, and then he will win because that's obviously it's stated nearly at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, he is destined to do this thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, were there any good examples of movies where there's been a destiny thread throughout where you do actually feel like, oh, I hope the character doesn't die or I hope he's able to finish his quest? The Matrix. Star Wars, Luke Skywalker. Star Wars, yeah. But I mean, like, where you say, this is my destiny. It's laid out in front of me. Sure. This is what the – like, Clash of the Titans in mm -hmm. a sense, yeah. right? Like, yep. that's what they say. You're supposed to do this. But instead of it being like – Yamato Takeru, it's like, you're supposed to destroy the dragon, kill this guy, do this thing, you know. <laughs> this It's a little more nebulous in Clash of the Titans, right? Like, you have to save everyone. And then the how you save everyone, that's where you build your story. Anyway, 
what did you love about the film, Brian? Um, the wacky, wacky effects, the crazy design of the, the robot mech suit and the, the crazy creatures. And if it is like an analogy to like a King Arthur style mythology, I love the idea that someone would do a King Arthur style story and be like, let's do robots now. Let's, you know, let's throw, let's throw crazy stuff in. Like while you've got him in a suit of armor, (laughs) why not make him gigantic? Why can't he have a lightsaber at (laughs) that point? Like, uh, some of that stuff was pretty wacky. Uh, that was, that was interesting. So how about you, Rachel? Mine's similar. I'm going to say like the magic powers, like the, how, the one guy had the sword that turned into like the light rope whip thing and like um and just the ongoing transformation of different like magic powers that all of a sudden people can they they did not only had the fireballs but the girl had like the beam and things like that like all of these magic things that came I will into play. agree with you that that was cool yeah but what bugged me about it was the what sane brought up during the movie it's the one trick pony thing mm-hmm. the girl yeah. and her fireballs mm-hmm. and uh that one guy genbu with the beard who basically it looked like he was writing a different character which i love i absolutely mm-hmm. yeah. love the idea that he's basically got like a, there's actually the guy in moon over tau one mm-hmm. of those dudes has a giant brush that he uses to do stuff. But anyway, in this film, I love that he's doing that because I feel like that's very Japanese. Like the way you make a character. There's power in a character. Exactly. So, and so that was awesome, but he kept doing the same thing. It's like, I don't want to see you make another rope to wrap around that dude. (laughs) I want to see you do a different character and have something else. Awesome. Happen. Exactly. So that's my only issue with that. Yeah. 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 That's it. Yeah. The one trick pony aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. What'd you love about it, Charles? You know, I, I'll talk, I'll talk about the more the technical side, you know, the, we were, you mentioned um, uh, uh, the King Arthur, but it made me think of uh, Excalibur and yeah. sort of that yeah, theatrical well. film style, and uh, except without all the awesome nudity, and then uh, <laughs> and then it made me think of uh, uh, Krull, which we mentioned. Yeah, yeah Krull is not a great movie either, but it's but it looks produ- great. Yeah, the production design is really fun. The theatrical, the really heavy theatrical nature of it is really fun. I like that about this movie. This film was nominated for an award, didn't get it, but nominated for award with the production design. And the lava monster is kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. So. Oh yeah, I love that. I love uh, the. I love the lava monster. Yep. What did you love saying? Did you love uh, anything about the movie? Oh yeah, no, I still enjoyed it. I'm not gonna. I'm again. I I'm sure the listenership thinks I just hate everything, and I, it's not true <laughs> at all. I, I like no, it. Man, I meant like um, like if you if you you know you watch the movie, like there might be one or two things that you're like, damn, that was cool. Oh no, yeah, there was a number of things. I I agree with Charlie. I I really love the lava monster. I love the production design because it was sets and then uh i said it during the viewing that's like we have gotten so jaded with just green screen and digital sets and they're all too elaborate and i appreciated at one point i didn't point it out but i was like yeah the hero's climbing over the wall and i could see that it was made of plywood and i <laughs> and i didn't mind because i knew it was a set it was something he was crawling over and yeah. it's like there's a tangibility about it and there was an art direction there was there yeah. was a production designer on set setting lights to look a certain way for that set. And I love it. It's handcrafted. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. you kind of nailed it with the, the simplicity. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's not so complex, you know, that you get out of modern blockbusters where there's just every little nut and rivet 
in yes. there. This this, this this is a little more simple, but it uh, f- actually feels better because yeah, it reminded me of like a Frank Vazetta painting. I mean, mm-hmm. I liked it. It was like just pastels and cool colors, and it was great. And it, it felt like it was supposed to be a castle dungeony area. Yeah. I really liked it. The sword and sandal movie. Mm-hmm. I like the moon stuff too, even though it didn't make sense. It was really it was it was cool looking. It looked great. I mean, I liked it. You yeah. ma- you mentioned that uh, the color palette of the film kind of yeah. felt like people from the center of the earth. Yeah, yeah, people uh, or the like, people that time, time forgot. forgot. Uh, okay. People that say yeah, yeah. yeah which like that the- movie especially. I know this is way outside the range of what we're talking about, but uh, it was very clear that they used like. Frank Fazetta and Boris Vallejo yeah. as their as their color palettes of the, like they tried to make everything look like an oil painting, which I love. I thought that yeah. was cool about this movie too. Yeah, like I the thought real that was really neat. bright oranges and like, well, and the soft pinks and and yeah. lavenders thrown onto stone walls, which are it's a weird thing, and it's probably nothing a average viewer would ever think about, but it's like it taps into a that has a a fantasy look. Mm-hmm. That has a fantasy palette. We have it going back to in our own cinema in the United States, like. The Sword in the Stone with Disney. Like, it's all mm-hmm. very palleted to be grazed with pastels. And we've, since then, for a long, long, long time, we use that and everything. Excalibur has it, too. Interesting. Like, it's because a lot of pulp covers, a lot of uh, paperback book covers were painted with oils that had that same yeah. palette. And so we always just associated fantasy with that. And cool. So I love it bled over into this somehow, but it was neat. I liked it. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because to me, the costumes and the, the color choices, they seem so different from what well, I would expect. Well, all the brides going up to the warlord view. were all yeah. in pastels too at one point, which I, and it didn't look like traditional fantasy Japan costuming, which I kind of liked. It was very different. I liked it. It wasn't much of, it wasn't, kind of samurai yeah this actually this so time-wise this predates the samurai so basically that's why you rarely see people with the hot dog bun Mm -hmm. uh side the princess leia hair which if you're not that yeah the listeners aren't even know what i'm talking about if they didn't watch this movie but it's almost like princess leia buns but squeezed into the hot dog bun shapes (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh but yes that's like like super old japan stuff the samurai stuff came about well and again not even like katana swords yeah like the chinese mainland swords which i love that was neat and uh, i mean the production design and and uh, the cinematography was very much like eighties British fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean that's like their reference for mm-hmm. this. I would love to know what the catalyst was for this. Like, what made Toho say, "You know, what we need to do. We need to tap into yeah. the birth of Japan story." Or why? Why? I mean, not that I, I have no problem with it. I I love the fact that there is a fantasy movie smack dab in the nineties. Um, sci-fi kaiju epics and like that's that's great I would love to see more of those yeah especially with everything like after like Gunhead being just robotic ro- robots yep. robots robots and then you've got this fantasy movie thrown in the middle of it that's pretty neat I don't know yeah what, there's what nothing year? here in the states I don't think that would have been yeah, a catalyst know. what year is Gunhead Gunhead 88? was 89. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. yeah 80, Gunhead and uh, Gunhead and Violante were the same year. Wow. Crazy. But pretty much everything after Gunhead became Mechagodzilla, Mogera, like robot-y things, robot yeah, you can, sort of things. You can yeah. see that evolution from uh, Violante through mm-hmm. Destroya pretty much mm-hmm. like following, essentially, following Koichi Kawakita's rise through the special effects department and becoming special effects head and making those decisions 
we're going to buy glitter in bulk. We're going to make magnesium. <laughs> uh, we're going to really dial in our optical effects. and Everything needs stuff. to spark. Yeah. Everything needs to spark. Everything needs to glow. Yeah. It's very 90s. I mean, well, this, this lives too, right alongside yeah. every movie of the Godzilla Hayes. Well, well, yeah, when sure. the white bird of heaven or whatever does its little protective, like, putting the baby bit. This is, again, if the listeners haven't seen the movie, that's not going to make any sense. But it had the same, like, Mothra-like little golden ring that, like, sprinkles fairy dust and yep. everything. It's like, that is obviously very symbolic. <laughs> the glitter something. shower curtain. The glitter shower curtain. <laughs> glitter hula hoop shower curtain thing, yep. Uh, so what what were some of the negatives of this film? What didn't you like about this movie? There's a lot of things that I could say could be tweaked to make it better. So waddle let's feet, let's yeah. not say like one thing that you <laughs> totally. just like is, yeah the waddle feet. Like, God, say, actually, you go ahead, crazy. just say that right it now. It just drives me crazy. That's yeah. like the actual Orochi like it had a uh, prop uh, obviously was driven on a track exactly like Bialante, and so the feet in the front, which are really the only ones you can see must be mechanized to like roll along the track at the exact same time, like a toy. And they just don't touch the ground. They're kind of like slapping the air. Yeah. They're like, look like a sea turtle or something. It just drives me nuts. It's like, as Kyle has said before, never show the feet, man. Never show the feet. Never show the feet. Downfall of modern kaiju cinema. Okay. Brian, now what didn't you like about this movie? Well, I mean, it was just incomprehensible. I wish I knew more about the mythology so that it would make a little bit more sense, but I don't have that that key to unlock it, so I don't. I, a lot of it just flies over my head. So maybe Chibasan will write in and tell us that she wasn't confused at all, <laughs> at all as yeah. Japanese. But uh, how about you, Rachel? What didn't you like about the film? What I'm, didn't strike a chord? I'm gonna go with that. Uh, I didn't care about the characters at all. Okay. Yeah. So like very said, valid. Yeah. Just yeah. nothing. Did nothing for me. Charles? Uh, yeah, I agree with Brian. It's really just confusion. Uh, I, I blame it all on writing. When you're writing a movie like this, I, I don't think you should ever write a movie where you expect the audience to know something about the backstories of everything before they go in. I mean, I, I think trimming out a little of the extra stuff so you could fit in maybe a little bit of exposition would have helped. Yeah. You know, so that you could, you know, as, as somebody had with zero background could understand it. Yeah, yeah. As I was watching it, I kept thinking to myself, how could this be remade in a way that actually would make sense? Not that I would want it to be made for an American audience, but how could this be remade that would still strike that chord with Japanese viewers and with uh, international audiences? But I don't know how to even answer that question. <laughs> and that's ridiculous. Well, I mean, it can be done. I mean... I've never read The Lord of the Rings, but I watched the theatrical releases of those movies and I understand everything that's going on. Sure. And I'm not missing the things that aren't included, like the people that have read the books. Right. But it, I get the movies and I don't I mean, connect with the characters. I don't feel lost. You know, I think you can do something like this uh, and and include everybody. So we're 22 years out from this movie having been made. Maybe in another 10, 15 years, somebody... We'll get the gumption at Toho to make a new version of this, and we'll see an updated Yamato Takeru, or maybe another aspect of this mythological tale. Uh, saying, what did you not care for in this film? Uh, I'm actually, oh, you actually kind of already said Well, I got, yeah, yeah. fodling but that's not, that's actually not, a, that's a middling and plain at best. Um, I'm not going to say necessarily that it's the incomprehensible story, because I think 
in this fantasy, especially again, the Asian kind of film. Um, I'm willing to accept that there's just like, oh, he just goes from this situation to the next, the next, the next. That's just the way the stories are told. Sure, I've yeah. seen enough of them now at this point. Um, I think I would have reduced the amount of extraneous characters that just don't have, they serve no purpose. I hate to say it. Like his two buddies, like, I think they're named once. I never caught it. Right. They right. do virtually nothing. Like they don't really protect him. They don't do anything. They're that like give their screen time to one of the characters that already exists and write a little more. Give them a little more to do. I want to know about sorcerer that's made of a dragon tooth because he's just like oh, yeah that guy kind of yeah. just an evil dude. Like <laughs> is he working with the emperor? I mean, sort of. Not really. Not enough there. That's what yeah. I would have focused on. That's my complaint. Right on. Yeah, Made I of a dragon tooth. My biggest complaint about the film is probably the missed connection to the characters. Like I said, as I get older, that's the thing that I look for in every movie. And this movie, I'm going to give it a little bit of leeway because it's so old. You know, it's 20 plus, 22 years old now. So it's not that I would expect Yamato Takeru to actually strike that chord with me, but the fact that the entire movie goes by and I don't feel for any of the characters, it's just a bummer. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a bummer because they, you can tell they put so much effort into this movie from, you know, the get go. That's when I feel like I've wasted my time watching something. It's yeah. when I've got to the end. It's like, I felt nothing for a single person in that movie. That's, like, that's when I feel like unfortunate, unfortunate. Uh, and again, like I said, there's a lot of little things that I, that bug me about the film. There's a lot of things that I love about the film, but overall, I'd love to know your, you guys' final thoughts. Uh, I was just excited to see it because it's something that it's been a hole in my Toho viewing. Sure. I heard about it when the 90s films were happening. I just never got around to it. So it was very cool to see. I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, and it, just the wacky stuff. Yeah, it was fun to watch. I mean, it wasn't a great movie, but it was definitely fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what I like about this genre is even if it's bad, it's still fun to watch. So well said. Yeah, I, I had a good time, even though it was confusing. It I, I didn't feel like it dragged on to me. So I think it was they at least they didn't make it three hours. So <laughs> <laughs> could have been worse. <laughs> could have been, been worse and longer. Yeah. I'm glad I saw it. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever sit through it again. It's a little, I mean, yeah, I'm glad it's not three hours, but even at what, 144, it's a little slow. Yeah. Was it only an hour and 44? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is an animated version too. We keep talking about the birth of Japan, the three hour version, but there was an animated one that I believe if Akube did the music for. Yeah, the little prince and yeah. the eight-headed dragon. And I haven't seen that one yet. That's the Toei animation one. Yeah, I would be interested to check that out. I've been kind of looking for it out on the on the internet, and I've seen some bootleg versions of it, but um, nice. I don't know how old those are, how good quality they are. Yeah. At this point, I'm looking for the highest quality I could find, et cetera. <laughs> but, uh, final thoughts? Um, I'm glad I watched it. I mean, it's certainly fun. I, it's, it's nice... Uh, diversion away from what we usually see. Definitely, uh, it's just it's just cool to see a different thing. And it's like, and as I get older, I notice it's like <laughs> I've come to the point in my life, cinematically viewing stuff, where it's like people will suggest things. I'm like, uh, it could be the greatest movie. It could be Lawrence Olivier or something like that. Yeah, you know, like I like it. Uh, 
Citizen Kane, and I just don't care about watching it because I only want to watch the movies that interest me. I, right. Yeah. And this movie interested me, so I'm glad I watched it. There's something about it. It's like it's not the greatest movie ever made, but it had something that I wanted to experience, and I am grateful for that. So cool. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my final thoughts on this film are that it's just not great. <laughs> and that's too bad because it's got such potential. And uh, as I said to myself as the movie was wrapping up and as I said right when we were sitting down, this is a movie that I really want to like more. And because of that, I give it more points than it deserves because really it doesn't deserve a lot of points. Uh, a lot of work went into it. So like just like Final Wars – I totally appreciate the art direction, the design, the pre-production stuff, the character design, all that stuff. I love it. But when it comes to the execution, that's where I think the movie fails. Uh, unfortunately, that was our only look at the birth of Japan in the 90s and beyond. <laughs> so we'll just have to see what happens in the future. Maybe, maybe we'll visit birth of Japan at some point just for the hell of it, that I don't know. Um, that's going to conclude our discussion here. We did get some homework in from the listeners, and we're going to start things off with Michael Deke. Okay, to be honest, this is one of the few Toho films I have not seen. Um, given that this one is based off Japanese mythology, like Kyle would say, I would have to be Japanese to fully understand this movie. But Orochi was actually a pretty solid movie overall. Just think of it this way. It's a story about how a boy gains his own gamma pendant and gains wild spirit powers that allow him to shoot lasers out his eyes. And Kaiju no Kami, if you're listening to this and you review this movie eventually, please, please, please make a Fusro Da joke about that, uh, about that aspect of the movie. Uh, the characters aren't pretty fleshed out, and the whole heroic journey thing has been done to death. Uh, especially the Chosen One thing just ruins the whole love story with Oto and Yamato Takeru. But, however, the production value is much higher than that of Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. I do have to mention that my favorite fight scene involves uh, Kumaso Takeru, who is played by the awesome Hiroshi Fujioka who you may know as Segata Sanshiro or Takeshi Hongo, the original Kamen Rider. Uh, Hiroshi Abe also has a pretty nice performance as the villain Tsukuyomi. However, I do prefer him better as Katagiri in Godzilla 2000. And Orochi kind of does feel like the tokusatsu equivalent of a Ray Harryhausen flick. And I know people have made this comparison before, but it especially resembles Clash of the Titans. In terms of the creature designs, the White Bird of Heaven is, without a doubt, the worst flying creature ever. I mean, even worse than Fire Rodan. Orochi himself is barely mobile, but overall he still is pretty menacing looking with all the fog surrounding him. And I do have a little fan theory that he might actually be the ancestor to the Ghidorahs, given that he's from outer space, and his heads would represent each of the eight times a Ghidorah has appeared in the Toho universe. Well, excluding the GMK Ghidorah, because 
we all know that one's not very worthy. Um, the Giant Warrior looked pretty cool. He looks like a cross between Daimajin and Mechagodzilla 2. And have I seen that before? Oh yeah, Kung Fu Panda 3. In short, 3 out of 5 stars. For completionists only, so check it out. You might like it. And we did, of course, get some written homework in as well. Unfortunately, Thomas, the curmudgeon of New England, has an old bootleg of this movie, a New England Stephen Russo bootleg. This was a great transitional effect movie for Toho. It was when they were first trying CGI effects mixed with traditional men in suits and blue screen. The good, the script and the acting were solid. The Kumaso God was Toho's best effect, combining CGI, a man in a suit, and blue screen all in one scene. The Phoenix was also a good design. Most of the fight scenes were well choreographed. Orochi, from the waist up, that is. The spinning legs could have been better. Maybe Orochi was just too big to properly handle. The God Warrior design was also cool, but very Power Ranger-esque. The Bad. The Crystal Chandelier ship flying through space. The Water Demon scene. Toho just cannot execute a good water scene. The Demon itself was well done, just the water tank itself did not work, even for a VHS tape. The moon scene reminded Thomas of the space scene between Mogera and Space Godzilla. It just was not well executed, and did not give the impression of being in space. And finally, the mediocre. Because of the size and ungainliness of the Orochi, the final battle between Orochi and the God Warrior pretty much just consisted of beams and fire being exchanged. The God Warrior conjuring a sword, and heads started flying. All in all, Thomas gives this 7 out of 8 Orochi heads and one tooth. A good solid movie to show a newbie monster fan. We got some homework in from Germany. Once again, Stefan writes in and he says he just watched the movie for the first time. And then he gives the German name. So I'm probably going to butcher this because my German accent is terrible. And my ability to read German is even worse than that. So he just watched Madra da Achtofpfiff Drachenmonster. I think I did that kind of okay, but it basically means Madra, the eight-headed dragon monster. He has no idea why the movie and the monster itself are called Madra in Germany, but, you know, they actually are continuing a long-standing tradition of changing the movie titles. Back to Stefan's review. Well, it was an interesting one. On one hand, the story beats were kind of random, but many legends and adaptations of legends feel that way. On the other hand... There is always something happening, and if you don't like what's happening right now, just wait a minute and something pretty different will be happening. The titular monster himself, whatever he's called, takes his sweet time to appear, but there are some different monsters on the way. Kind of rest stop monsters. Since King Ghidra was based on the legendary Orochi, it was kind of fitting that Orochi looked like King Ghidra with more heads. Strangely, the movie looked and sounded like something from the 80s instead of from 1994. And about the look, if somebody would have told Stefan that the gods are actually supposed to be aliens, he might just believe them. And judging by their swords, they're probably from a galaxy far, far away. The music was good at times, when they kept the sexy jazz out of it. But the pop song at the end was misplaced. That's as if the Lord of the Rings would end with a rapping Gandalf. Would Stefan recommend this to a kaiju newbie? If they like Sinbad movies, yes. Otherwise, no. 
For this viewing, Mike Keller watched his VHS subtitled copy of Yamato Takeru, rather than the ADV Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon. Mike considers this version superior if for no other reason the inclusion of the song Rain by the band Glay. Mike thinks it would be remiss to talk about Yamato Takeru and not discuss Rain in a little more detail. While it's not unusual for a lot of kaiju eiga and tokusatsu films to contain pop or rock songs by contemporary Japanese artists, Rain is a pretty big deal. The song is written and produced by Yoshiki of X Japan. Mike says that the man and that band are subjects unto themselves that one could dedicate an entire show to. Suffice to say that X Japan is easily the most popular music act in the history of the Asian continent, despite being ostensibly a metal band, and Yoshiki is the group's vocal center. What's more surprising is that Yoshiki doesn't even sing. He's the drummer, you know, the guy in the band that most people make jokes about. Okay, he plays keyboards too, and while there are no real keyboard player jokes, it's just not as sexy as being a guitarist or a singer. However, Yoshiki is the closest thing Japan has produced to Michael Jackson thus far. As for Glay, the band that performs the song, their popularity, while nowhere near that of X-Japan, was pretty sizable in the 1990s. This song, in particular, was a huge radio staple in 1994. Although everyone makes note of the fact that it appeared on Glay's debut 94 album, High to Diamond, most sources don't acknowledge that it was actually written for this movie. This is evidenced by the fact that the motifs from the song appear throughout other parts of the soundtrack. Moving on to the film itself, Mike thinks Yamato Takeru is the Japanese equivalent of a movie like Jason and the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans. He says that it has three things in common with the earlier stop-motion fantasies. One, they are all mythological dramatizations of dead religions that aren't currently practiced. Most modern Japanese aren't religious at all, and of the ones who are, most are Shinto Buddhist. Two, they take a great deal of license in making the myths more visually action-packed and exciting for modern audiences. Three, they conspicuously drop all of the homoeroticism existent in the original stories. It is suggested in the original text that Kumaso soldiers enjoyed the hero immensely before he slew them. Mike says that some mention ought to be made of the magatama, or comma-shaped bead, and seen in this film. He notes that many will recognize the object from the Gamera films without realizing the shape actually has a long-standing significance in Japanese culture. Magatama appear in many Japanese fantasy films and TV shows and are generally believed to be objects capable of housing great spiritual power. Archaeologists have found Magatama in Japan dating back to 1000 BCE. Overall, Mike thinks it's an entertaining film, but he says that it's heads and tails above Space Godzilla, which came out later that year, and has a nice array of monsters. He thinks that the only problem with Yamato no Ochi, I thought it was Yamato no Orochi, but anyway, are its legs. They only seem capable to making a wide wax-on, wax-off motion, and do not give the illusion of propelling the monster's body forward at all. Mike thinks that the phoenix also looked too much like a robot. There were also several spots in the movie where Mike was reminded of other films. The opening sequence unfortunately reminded him of the horrific Hercules movie with Lou Ferrigno. Tsukiyomi's ship called to mind Kal-El's transport to Earth in Superman the movie. Ojo's sacrifice to the Kamaso god was more than a little reminiscent of King Kong, and there were little things sprinkled throughout that conjured images of virtually every sword and sorcery epic to appear on cable in the 1980s. We here in the studio actually thought that the rise of the Kamaso god 
that whole scene sort of reminded us of Temple of Doom, actually. Mike noticed some familiar faces, Masahiro Takashima from Gunhead and a couple of the Heisei Godzilla films as the titular hero, Yasuko Takashima from Return of Godzilla as the female lead, and hats off to Toho for casting a 29-year-old actress in a role that would normally go to a 17- to 19-year-old. Hiroshi Abe from Godzilla 2000 and Moon Over Tao as the villainous Tsukiyomi, looking like he just stepped into live action off an Inuyasha animation cell. Okay, Mike's done with this one. And he requested Rain by Glay, so we're going to play that at the very end of the episode. Adam notes that Takao Okawara, fresh off his box office hit with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla in 1993, takes his swing at a big screen adaptation of the legendary Birth of Japan story, already made famous to Toho enthusiasts for Hiroshi Inagaki's Three Treasures in 1959. Unfortunately, Okawara continues his unenthusiastic approach to his work as the audience is left here with this uninspiring mid-1990s film. In fact, Yamato Takeru is pretty lackluster across the board as it's plagued by a weak script and a hollow cast of characters, as the bland acting, special effects, and musical score do little to help the movie. The movie's story is a pretty ho-hum retelling of its famous source material, as is likely evident. In fact, the movie tends to play out like a modern video game RPG, seen at points where Oto rushes in and attacks a group only to, after a short battle, join them on their quest. The scene after Kamasagami is defeated and the mirror of the white bird of the heaven drift down from the sky and softly lands into Yamato Takeru's hands is just too appropriate for this correlation as well, to the point where you almost expect a message to appear saying, You have collected the mirror of the white bird, as a level-up screen follows. The aspect of the storytelling aside, the way the movie moves from one element to the next is just awful, as the pacing is amazingly poor. This doesn't give the movie a rushed impression, though, but is also fairly exasperating to watch on the part of the viewer. For example, upon Yamato Takeru being pardoned by his father and his return to the castle, you see his mother, perfectly fine, being grateful for this. Yet it suddenly transitions to the prince waking up to his bedridden mother who is deathly ill. The whole thing is handled in such a way, in fact, that you half expect for the mother to have walked into the next room and nearly collapsed instead of the movie giving a sense that a good deal of time has transpired between the two events. The manner of which characters in the movie are constantly being revived is also problematic. Both Yamato Takeru and Oto are resurrected during the film, and in the case of Oto, it actually happens twice. Although it's never specifically addressed, one can assume this was due to divine intervention, yet it gives the whole proceeding a lack of urgency. The story is also a little too convenient at times, like Tsukinoa admitting that he killed Yamato Takeru's mother and brother to the young man, although the latter of which doesn't even make sense considering that we saw Takeru kill him in self-defense. In terms of the special effects, they are also fairly lackluster here under Koichi Kawakita's guidance. However, his crew certainly did manage to cram a wide variety of beasts into the film, ranging from the lava god Kumasagami to the eight-headed Orochi. The suits themselves for the monsters are very well done in terms of details, yet like a lot of Kawakita's work at this time, are far less impressive once they are seen in motion. The almost slug-like Orochi is the best example of this, as the creature has trouble slithering around on the screen with much credibility. Kumasogami is created here with much better results, particularly the sequences where he is seen towering over Yamato Takeru and his band. His shape-shifting hands, a very interesting concept into their own, are also executed well. Sadly, the suit tends to also wobble about a little unconvincingly, although its role in general is very minor. 
Utsuno Ikusagami, who appears during the climax, is handled fairly well. His design seems kind of out of place, and it's a distinctly more modern than one would expect. Yet, Kawakita packs the character with so many bells and whistles, like the great effects of the creature's birth and his reflective barrier, that it works. In fact, the special effects managed to make the climax actually interesting to watch, despite how incredibly one-sided the conflict is. The rest of the creatures, save for the incredibly stiff Amano Shiratori that makes Fire Rodan from Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla look like a crowning achievement, fare pretty well. The special effects director also pulls off some sequences here with good results, like the entire creation of the universe segment at the start of the movie. Sadly, there's a lot of stuff that goes amiss here as well. The green screen work, for example, being one of the more apparent as it still needs a lot of work to look more credible. And it's not used sparingly here either. Kawakita's trademark sparks are also in full force and are seen when the swords strike pretty much anything. In the special effects director's defense, in terms of the production as a whole, he was severely overworked here as Toho had him creating both this and Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla in that same year, although the latter of which probably suffered more on the account of it. Actually, I'm curious about that because it seems to be like the timing of these two films, one released in July and the other one released in December, seems like they would have been doing post-production on Yamato Takeru at the same time that they would have been doing pre-production on Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla and beginning to film the uh, special effects stuff. So I'm wondering if they went straight in production, if they started working on Yamato Takeru and then just carried over and went straight into Space Godzilla from there. Who knows? Maybe I'll find that out someday. Not having seen the first Toho adaptation of these legends, The Three Treasures, Adam cannot say which film is better. In closing, Yamato Takeru is yet another forgettable 1990s special effects-driven picture from Toho. Cameron had really never heard of this film until it was brought up as the next film for the discussion, so he quickly bought the last copy of the DVD Amazon had and sat down to get to work. Right off the bat, he was impressed with the mythological inspiration of the film, which is very different from almost all of the other kaiju films he had seen, except maybe Daimajin. However, the beginning of the film set him on edge since it felt very rushed and crammed in a lot that he felt should have been given time to breathe. It did feel better once Yamato Takeru was sent into the lands of the barbarians and culminated in a very fun and cool duel with Kumasu Takeru, reminiscent of the wuxia films of the 1970s, and gave Cameron a lot of hope moving forward. The movie followed up this pretty solid sword fight with a really cool-looking reveal of Kumasagami, which was a pretty impressive-looking creature. However, the fight was a pretty big letdown due to the lumbering pace and shoddy green screen effects, and the movie never really managed to pick it back up. The fight with the sea creature was similarly disappointing, and especially the final battle between the very Power Rangers-looking final form of Takeru and Orochi. The battles between human-looking opponents were much more engaging, even if they were brief. Honestly, most of the effects work here were a huge step down from the work that Toho was doing during the Heisei period, especially the green screen stuff, but Orochi looked like he was being moved around on a cart and not actually walking, and the phoenix was pretty bad as well, especially its wing movements. Despite this, the designs of all the creatures were great, it's just the illusion crumbles whenever they have to move. The one effect Cameron was pretty impressed with was the disintegration of Oto. That was a true standout. And Cameron is rather fond of the incredibly elaborate period costumes everyone was wearing. To him, this whole film screams wasted potential. Better effects work and more engaging fights could have turned this into a Toho version of the Harryhausen classics, such as the Sinbad films or Jason and the Argonauts, with the regular rotation of interesting and cool beasts and battles against them. 
While Cameron is glad he has seen this film, mostly for the fun sword duel in the middle, it also piqued his interest in the film that this is apparently a loose remake of, The Birth of Japan, which he has seen called the Shinto Japanese version of the Ten Commandments, which is an impressive claim, as well as starring the legendary Toshiro Mifune with effects work done by maestro Eiji Tsuburaya. Definitely going to pick that up in the near future. I will warn you, though, Cameron, that seriously, the effects work are limited to one small scene. Everything else is pretty much just like a standard actual movie. He's most likely not going to revisit this film anytime soon, as it's mostly average all the way through. Cameron just has one final thought to add. Did anyone else hear the lightsaber effects during the duel with Tsukiyama or Orochi? Taylor says that Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon is not only a good kaiju movie, it's a good movie in general. While the original Three Treasures is a good film, the retelling of that story in this film is expertly done, and Cameron would argue is better than the original. While it may be lacking in some kaiju battles, the martial arts fights and good storytelling more than make up for that. It was also interesting to see a stop-motion monster in the same movie with suit monsters like the Gabara Destroya hybrid ocean monster and the Eight-Headed Dragon. Speaking of the Eight-Headed Dragon, it looked amazing. Praise should also be given to the technical ability of having eight bobbing heads spraying fire old Gamera style. And then he also has a question, with both Space Godzilla and this film being from Toho and coming out within the same year, were the same suit designers on both films. The body of the Gabara-faced ocean monster looks very similar to the Destroya monsters. I actually did some research for you on this. So um, I'm friends with Shinichi Wakasa on the, the Book of Faces, and I asked him if he worked on this film because I know for a fact that he worked on Space Godzilla. Space Godzilla was one of the very first Godzilla movies that Wakasa was building suits for. So when I asked him about that and this, he said that his crew, which is, I, I don't know if at the time it was called Monsters, Inc., but now it's called Monsters, Inc., his crew was making only the sea monster for this movie. And another crew in a different uh, facility, completely different company, made all the other monsters. So I think at the time, Toho was using both companies to sort of like make sure that they were able to make their monster marks. <laughs> anyway, that is going to do it. Thank you guys so much for submitting your homework. Thanks to my crew here. And uh, are you guys interested in knowing what next month's Daikaiju discussion film is? Absolutely. No Daikaiju discussion next month. <laughs> because I leave for Emerald City at the beginning of the month. Oh. And with some very small day, night exceptions i'm gone for the rest of the month so <laughs> i'll be in japan and then i'll be in la and then i'll arrive back in portland <laughs> at the very end to see what havoc and chaos awaits me um but we do have a very awesome thing that we're continuing and this is where we kick into monster march madness part two <laughs> eliminated many, many kaiju from our Monster March Madness battles. And now we are going to go ahead and continue things. We've got the same crew here. And uh, I believe we should start things off with the Godzilla region. We're going to go ahead and kick it off with a first battle. 
Godzilla 2014 versus the 1992 Batogoji from Godzilla versus Mothra. I gotta say, as much as these two monsters are kind of sized appropriately, and as much as I love the Heisei version of Godzilla, I don't know if this particular one, because he kind of gets his butt kicked in Godzilla versus Mothra, I don't know how he'd fare against the legendary Godzilla. The uh, 90s one uses his atomic breath quite a bit more than the 2014 one, so that might be his only advantage. Yeah, and I would actually say if we're going like through the movies, like the 1992 version of Godzilla, his breath is powerful just like it normally was, but it, he didn't get into like supernova mode yeah. that he did in the next few films. What do you think, Rach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm afraid so. I'm thinking the 2014 uh, is a lot beefier, a lot stronger, and uh, he has what it takes to take down the 92. Yeah, 2014 all the way. I just He just got that mass. He's just so big compared to everybody else. Until we get to the uh, Slatherin, I don't think there's going to be many monsters that can take down Legendary's Godzilla. All right, there we go. That is 2014 for the win in the second round of our Godzilla region. Now we're going to our next battle. Interesting pairing. Godzilla 2001, the GMK Godzilla, versus the 2002 Godzilla against Mechagodzilla version. I'm just going to go ahead and call this now. There is no way that the 2002 version is going to beat the evil badass of GMKzilla. What do you think, Zane? Well, there's just the size difference. Really, that's the big difference. No. Two different sizes. No, that's not the only difference. The 2002 is a wuss compared to (laughs) the evil overarching enemy of No, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it stands a chance. Oh, okay. Not only is he's just, he's bigger (laughs) and he's just, he's just straight meaner. He's He's way meaner. He is more powerful, more ferocious. So now someone argue for the 2002. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Good versus evil here, right? 2002 is not good. Is he? Is he kind of? No. No. Okay. I guess that's true. He's kind of nicer than It's like force of nature versus evil. Evil destruction. Yeah. See, you can't argue for the 2002. It's impossible. No, it's I tried. Impossible. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, yeah. guys. Yeah. Is this a hands down? Another yeah. one? It's a, it's oh, yeah. a shut down. It's too fierce. Or shut out. I don't know. What's a sports term? <laughs> Insert sports term here. Sports term. <laughs> this is a good one. Our next battle takes us back to 1968 to bring Godzilla from Destroy All Monsters against 2004's Godzilla Final Wars Goji. This is cool because both of these monsters are badasses. Both of these monsters, I think, could be equally matched because they clearly are smart. They clearly know how to beat their opponents. They both fought a lot. There's a lot of tangents going on here. Parallels, you could say. But... I gotta say, 2004's Godzilla has the powers and abilities that the 1968 just doesn't. Unfortunately, the 68 Destroy All Monsters Godzilla just has his breath weapon. Obviously, Godzilla Final Wars has all of the things he's acquired over his entire lifetime with the uh, nuclear pulse and the, what was that thing you called? The spiral spiral breath? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, Yeah. experience takes him out as well. And another 50 meters. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Size, yep. 
So how do we call it's, this, you guys? Well, it's 2004. It's going to be yeah. Final Wars. Final Wars. Final Wars all the we way. We may need to investigate performance-enhancing drugs, though. I notice <laughs> all the newer Godzillas are beefier and heavier. Mm, I think good they're point. cheating. Think yeah, cheating. we may need to asterisk some of these guys on Let's the final show. I should ask Haru and Nakajima how he feels about the results of this next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He'll just be like, what are you talking about, crazy, <laughs> crazy white man? Our next battle is 2000 versus 1974. So, Mire Goji versus uh, Godzilla from Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. They're about what the same height, think? though, finally. So. Yeah, we've got an evenly place. matched height battle going on here. We've got superhero Godzilla from the Showa era, and... I wouldn't say superhero. He's sort of a good guy, but he's sort of a territorial monster, the 2000 Godzilla. Charles, what I, do you think? You man? know, 2004, or excuse me, 2000. I'm getting mixed up here. A lot of uh, Godzillas we're talking about tonight. The, uh, we'll move uh, along from them yeah, very quickly. The, <laughs> the 2000, he just has more aggressiveness that I think is going to take over. Okay, more animalistic That's nature. Right. So you think the animal is going to win out over the reasoning of the 74? What do you think, Rachel? I kind of agree. Yeah, I think that he's more ferocious, more vicious. I think that he's got kind of more spunk to him, and uh, that will um, get him the extra momentum to take down 1974. All right. It's not that he's not a smart monster, obviously. Brian. I'm going 74. I think that uh, he'll outthink the 2000 monster. And since the sizes are pretty compatible, we finally have a Showa era that could probably take down a newer monster. So I'm going to go 74. I, I am also in the 74 camp. So, so we got two for 74 and then everybody, the three of them, I can tell just from the looks, we've got the uh, Godzilla <laughs> 2000 winning this, but it's a close battle as we have seen in our last round. So Godzilla 2000 is the winner. That's going to do it for our Godzilla region. Moving on to the Showa region. We have King Kong Versus King Ghidra. Yes. Yeah. Man. Battle of Kings. Nice. The Battle of Kings, yes. I don't know how I feel about this battle. I got to say, that 1962 Kong, he's a little more powerful than I'd like him to be just because I'm not a fan of the, uh, you know, the giant gorillas like you guys are. Now, as giant gorilla fans, giant ape fans, what do you want to happen here? I mean... Shoot, he can scale buildings, and he can, he had his own island, and he you know he had his own island. <laughs> he fought he has, an octopus. He's savvy with and his he money. Has, we he like has that. A <laughs> motivation to uh, get the girl. He had um, a white girlfriend. So <laughs> <laughs> he's got it going on, and he wants to keep that going. So I think he has a good shot at it. We'll I say. can see that you want him to win. Mm-hmm. I just have a little bit of trouble picturing King Kong. Winning against he's gonna King Gugidura. He's gonna tie those necks into knots, and it's game yeah. over. Mm-hmm. And he's gonna he's gonna yep. definitely rip one of those heads open like he did the T Rex. Oh wow! Oh okay. yeah! And he's got two tails to swing that that yeah. monster from. Yeah! Wow! Two tails, right. two hands. And we're not it's even on. factoring in his electricity that he has in the uh, sixty-two version. That's a good point. How would King Kong react mm-hmm. with those gravity beams? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's what I say. I don't give this edge to Kong. I th- I mean, Ghidra took on. Six monsters. That's right. He, and, yeah. and barely lost. Like he's, he barely lost yeah. to 
Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra. Gorosaurus he barely lost to Godzilla and Rodan. He barely lost to all of yeah. the Disroyal Monsters yeah. cast. Or he did lose to them, basically. But they it took, beat him, yeah. It took six of them to do it. It did. So yeah. I, I don't think Kong's got the edge in this one. All right. He's pretty unstoppable. He's kind of a juggernaut. And he kind of like rolls over everything that comes in front of him. There's a reason that King Ghidra is a Showa-era fan favorite. Yeah. And it's because he is so menacing and has caused so much trouble i don't know what do you think charles i'm with kong you're with kong stand with kong (laughs) (laughs) all right so i'm actually i agree with sane but unfortunately it is a three to two victory for kong yeah in the king kong king Ghidorah movie somebody get on that please yeah for (laughs) sure yeah no kidding I know several people in this room that would watch that. (laughs) Our next bout is with Varan versus Mothra. Oh, if only Jeff were here. One of my favorite monsters versus one of his favorite monsters. Two flying monsters. Two flying monsters. Although, to be perfectly honest, Varan sort of just like glides. He's more like a squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were to pit a flying squirrel against a giant moth, I think Mm. I'd go with the flying squirrel. I'm thinking so. Claws. That's yeah. what I'm leaning yeah. towards, yeah. Claws, spines, Weight. teeth. Teeth, yeah. yeah. That mm-hmm. tail. Sugar glider. Yeah. <laughs> the most yeah. dangerous sugar glider. <laughs> well, he's basically a big bat, and a he reptile is. bat. And yeah. what do bats eat? <laughs> Good point. Oh, yeah. Although I would yeah. assume he ate fish because he lived under the lake. Uh, but regardless, what could we say about Mothra? Mothra obviously has some smarts. She's got her pollen, but I just don't see it. I don't see it either. I don't see it winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think yeah. Varan can get a high attack and glide down there right on top of Mothra. Okay. And start eating away. So that's a unanimous Varan. Well, I'm going to vote yeah. Mothra just because Jeff's not here. Yeah. Oh, so you're going to take Jeff's. But I know the ship is sinking on but me. I was so. going to say, that defeats the purpose of what you think the battle <laughs> yeah. should be about. That's true. You can't just say, like, well, I'm just going to vote because Jeff's not here. The When you brought up the fact that bats eat insects, Mothra can't outsmart that, yep. unfortunately. Varan <laughs> mm-hmm. is very bat-like, let's face it. All right, so Varan is the winner there, and we're moving on to our next bout. <laughs> Please welcome to the ring, Rodan, fighting against Gigan. Oh, my God. Ooh. 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 I would watch that movie, too. I would, yep. I would watch all of these movies repeatedly and on multiple formats. I would say, as much as I love both of these monsters, Rodan is just too nice, and Gigan has the evil edge. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Sane. I actually agree. As much as I love Rodan, I think it's a, a great monster. Gigan's just a psychopath. He is just going <laughs> uh, to cut Rodan apart. He's going to cut his wings up. He's going to use his hammer claws. Even with that armored chest, I don't see uh, Rodan getting a lot of damage in on Gigan. Gigan's pretty armored, too. I mean, they'd almost, mm-hmm. without, the, without all the cybernetic accoutrement i would say they would be very evenly matched but it's those weapons rodan Mm -hmm. is at his very nature he is just a beast of the earth i feel like rodan still has a chance with the flapping sonic power that he has he can just blow he is much faster yeah and blow gigan back a little bit however i kind of lean with you guys the cybernetic stuff's just going to take over he's he's just going to have Mm -hmm. the advantage Gigan win. I agree. Those banana hands are going to tear up those wings. Oh, the banana hands. Yeah. He's like the Terminator. Gigan all the way. He's nice. going to win. 
All right, that is a lock. Geigen is in like Flynn for this round. Bringing us to our last Showa region battle, and a really good one, I'm hoping. Jet Jaguar versus Hedera. Now, the way Godzilla defeated Hedera in 1971 took a lot of brains, a lot of observational instincts, and a lot of different abilities. They had a lot going on for them with the giant metal... They weren't mirrors, right? They were just electric generators or something. Yeah, like parabolic. Yeah. They were kind of like the Markalites. But that kind of seems like something that Jet Jaguar just might have up his sleeve. Mm. He might not need the humans to actually mm-hmm. interact with. But does he? But does he? Yeah, That's a we, great we question. We never saw it. Has anyone ever actually given Jet Jaguar's full abilities? That is a question I have right now. They only seem to know judo and growing. I don't remember having any energy. He's got a mean thumbs up too. Yeah, Yeah, since well, can he get? Is it he can get to limitless size? Like he could just grow as big as he wants. That's just because that could. Well, that could take over anything, really. I mean, if he can keep growing. as as far as we've observed in these mm-hmm. battles in the past, he's topped out at about fifty meters. Yeah, okay. Well, we established in the last battle with Mecha Godzilla that Hedora is basically just going to dissolve him. That's it's true. Just, yeah. it's totally true. And yeah. Jet Jaguar yeah. is nothing but another robot, and not even as durable even good, as yeah. Mecha Godzilla. I would say much more, mm-hmm. uh, much more nimble and quick and agile. And, Maybe you know, his ability to he can zip sure, around. He can sure fly some loop de loops. <laughs> yes, he can. He learned that from Ultraman. <laughs> so, what do you think? What are we thinking here? What's the verdict? I'm going Hedera. Uh, yeah, Hedera. Yeah, Hedera. Hedra. Mm-hmm. Yep, Hedra. Oh, the Sultan Oof. of Sludge wins the round against Jet Jaguar. All right, moving on to the Heisei Millennium region. Our first battle is Monster X versus Biolante, the 2004 villain against the 1989 giant plant beast. I have a bad feeling that Biolante is going to lose. Size does not matter in this round. What do you think, Charles? Well, I think the alien ingenuity, the intelligence there is probably going to take over and win in this bout. Zane? I actually give it to Biolante. If it is Godzilla in so many ways, she's got just the same amount of regenerative ability. She is bigger. She can always grow more vines like we saw in Biolante. I think she could take it. She who fights and burns away lives to fight another day. (laughs) Yeah. She does take multiple forms. She could always maybe disintegrate and reform that's true that's true what do you think brian yeah i gotta go biolante on this one Mm. i think monster x moves in to try to get the hits and the tentacle arms come out and he's done i'm kind of with charles on this i think alien technology could really help out monster x here and take down biolante i would imagine that they've observed earth quite a long time before they decided to land on earth you know as (laughs) most aliens do and Those yeah, aliens. Mm-hmm. and so they would know how to take down a plant. Yeah, I think that they could easily, you know, overwater the darn thing, and it's dead. <laughs> Not really a plant, you know? though. I was just so, gonna say one mm, one match might be the end of Biolante, but I, I got to side with Monster X. Actually, that alien aspect and the fact that monster x while not nearly in the same class weight wise as Biolante, monster x has that speed the agility and the probably the the brain power to overpower 
that particular kaiju. So that is three to two against Biolante with Monster X claiming the title for this round. We're going to move on to our next battle, Mecha King Ghidorah versus Batra. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a bad feeling that Batra is not going to make it out of this battle because Mecha King Ghidorah just has so many tricks up its sleeve. Sane? I disagree. I think Batra would take Mecha King Ghidorah. Really? It's a really slow monster. It doesn't do a lot. What good is the, like, the, the taser going to do? It doesn't have limbs to grab onto. You know, and yeah, but if Mecha King Kidra got behind Batra, I mean, but even depends on if it's, you know, larval Batra or flying Batra, like flying Batra's probably got super edge over Mecha King Kidra, who flies exceptionally slow and has really delicate wings. Batra flies really slow, too. Let's, if we're going to go for Heisei flight, (laughs) let's just take that off the table. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I I think larval pretty powerful i think it might be able to take it out especially right. with those wings those wings are so fragile like took oh yeah one yeah. one heat beam destroyed an entire wing in like two seconds okay. those prisma blasts might uh might take them out good to know well i i voted mega gear as against uh king Gitter in the last round and i think that batra is even smarter and a better combatant than mega gear is so i'm going batra rachel Man, it's a tough call here. We've got the cybernetic technology of Mecha King Ghidra, which could be pretty powerful. And Batra, you know, is is an alien or a terrorist? He's a god. Ancient god. god. Yeah. Oh, he's a god. Oh, that he is her. a god. <laughs> I'm pretty a sure that god. wins every time. Yeah. Spoken uh, because, like a true yeah, non-religious person. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Godzilla killed it, though. Uh, Godzilla's not yeah. a god. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, so true. you could have that skill, but I don't think Mecha King Ghidra has as much skill as Godzilla. So I kind of think that Batra could beat Mecha King Ghidra. I'm going Batra. I think this is even easier for Batra than the last round. Oh, really? Yes. All right. Well, it sounds to me like Batra wins. And now... We go to Orga versus Mothra 92. Wow. <laughs> How on earth would Orga defeat Mothra? <laughs> oh, I was going to say the opposite. I was like, how is Mothra going to beat Orga? My perspective on a flight to land based kind of fight here mm-hmm. has changed since we started the last round. And now I'm of the mind that those wings are actually going to be an advantage. See, for I see them as so delicate. They are They're delicate. So delicate. And Orga's got a hell of a jump. Like if he jumps up with those giant hands, oh, yeah. he could just squish it like, mm. like a bug. That's like really the problem. It's that whole thing with the massive monster, even though Orgo is not massive in this yeah. particular fight, but the, he's got that technique with those big giant hands like just be fast, you know, dodge and weave. Don't let him get a hold of you. Otherwise, you're finished. Well, well, what powers does Mothra have at this point? Mothra 92 has many Laser powers. Antennas. Mothra can fly at Mach 3. She can travel through space. Uh, she has hurricane winds from her wings. Her antennas shoot beams. She can release scales from her wings that will reflect energy attacks back on their source. And she can create telepathic projections of herself, which I wouldn't count in this, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's very Mothra. That's not useful. Yeah. <laughs> am I over here? Oh, am I over here? You'll yeah. never know. <laughs> You'll never know, Orga, where I am. You know. <laughs> so I would say those are the, the yeah, those are her abilities. She's got uh, the scales that will reflect energy attacks. She can shoot beams for okay. her antenna. And then, yeah, she can create hurricanes with her wings. 
Yeah, I don't know. Orga seems like enough of a brute that he could withstand most of it. Yeah, them. I feel like that too. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he regenerates. He's got the G1 cells. So. Oh, yeah. I did forget about that. Yep. So a little bit of time will heal all wounds for mm-hmm. Orga. All right. Mm-hmm. Sounds to me He's also got like that we have cannon. a winner for this. That's right. He does have that shoulder cannon. That shoulder cannon's cannon. pretty, yeah, pretty Mothra, powerful. Yeah, Mothra's out at that point. Uh, yeah. Someone call Jeff. With <laughs> <laughs> that news. Orga wins. I just picture Mothra in Orga's mouth, the big extended mouth now, as he's just chomping down on it. Oh. Like, a, like a bullfrog with a dragonfly yes, exactly. in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. Most of our monsters here from the Heisei Millennium round ended up being the Heisei ones instead of the Millennium ones. Okay, last battle of the Heisei Millennium round. Mechagodzilla 93 versus Destroya. Destroya. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to side with Mechagodzilla here. Wow. And here's why. Destroya was powerful against Godzilla. And I think the reason that was is because of the makeup of Destroya brought back to life by the oxygen destroyer. There is something inherently anti-Godzilla in Destroya. When Destroya went up against the military, they kind of kicked its ass. In fact, at the very end, granted, after a fight with Godzilla, Destroya was trying to leave. The military just, the JSDF, they just shot him out of the sky with their ice lasers or cold lasers. Mm. And that was the end of Destroya for the movie. So Mm. I'm going to choose Mechagodzilla, but how do you choose? You have convinced me. I was not on that side of the fence, but you make a very valid point. I think the uh, weaponry definitely beats Destroya. Rachel. I agree. Your uh, persuasive talking has convinced me that Mechagodzilla is where it's at. They have no contest then. I, 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 you know, I was thinking, I was thinking size again was going to have the advantage, but uh, no, now that you mention it, you know, it's a valid point. The technology actually was triumphing over uh, Destroya in that movie. Yeah, Destroya didn't really have all that. Mecha Godzilla wins. Our last round of uh, regional brackets here for this particular recording, non-Toho Kaiju. This is where it gets weird, you guys. <laughs> First battle, Ultraman versus Otachi. Ultraman topping out at about 40 to 50 meters. And Otachi, a Category 4 Kaiju, 63 meters, not super mega massive, hmm. but 2,690 tons with lots of weaponry. Just yeah, genetically awesome. created mm-hmm. and developed weaponry. The yep. giant claw tail, the wings, the acidic spit, the weird tongue thing. Who knows what <laughs> this is going to use? The thingies, things that's yeah. on his head, whatever Big you call them. too. I mean, it. <laughs> Yeah. Quite the striking power in its hands. So. Yeah, without a doubt. So this is going to be a tough battle for Ultraman. But Ultraman's a hero, and he's always come out on top, except for when he fought Zeton at the end. Spoilers. Yeah, we've already covered that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say, like, he died in a specific way. What? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to the battle at hand. We have Otachi fighting Ultraman. How do you side? Sane. I actually say Ultraman in this regard. Okay. He has fought monsters every bit as specific as us with so many things in their favor. And he's still triumphed. It's true. I think it's a more of an even match than you're giving Ultraman credit for. He was able to defeat Leatherback 
in the last round. That is true. That is true. And uh, I don't think Otachi is that much more of a threat. You make a very valid point because Otachi and Leatherback came out of that breach at the same time. They're both category four kaiju and they essentially were sent as a tag team. And this is not a tag team situation. I don't know. I, I'm kind of, I'm leaning towards Otachi. I think that he worries me. He's got all the different weapons and he seems a lot more vicious, whereas Ultraman is more of a cool collected guy that um, I think Otachi will fight mean. He's not going to uh, be polite in this battle and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and it's going to, it's, it's not going to work out well. All right. Yeah. Brian? Well, if Gypsy Danger can fly up into space and defeat Otachi, I definitely think that Ultraman can do it. He would ride Otachi up into space like Dr. Strangelove, and he would tear its wings apart. Swatch! Yes, it would be epic. And then he would land with the baby Otachi, and the Science Patrol would raise it to be a good monster. No, I like that so. story better. <laughs> do you want to change your vote? I change my vote. I change my vote. So All right. Ultraman. So actually, it sounds like Ultraman is the winner of this round. Congratulations to the hero from M78. <laughs> Balton is up next fighting Slattern. What a weird, <laughs> weird battle this would be. This is why I said it's getting weird now. Mm-hmm. Slattern is massive. Slattern is bulky and has very powerful weapons built into it. Not, not like uh, the EMP blast or anything. But it's just a big kaiju. Yep, multiple arms, multiple tails, very fast underwater. We don't know how it does on land. <clears throat> no, we um, didn't get to, unfortunately, we didn't get to see that. <laughs> yeah, don't know if it has any energy weapons. We didn't see that. Yeah. But, uh, but I think just like sheer scale, like it's going to dominate. Like, I mean, it's ever so slightly bigger than legendary Godzilla. Also, alien too. Yeah. So we're dealing with two different aliens. Yeah. This one's from a different dimension. Yeah. Yes. Brian, what do you think, man? Well, is the fight happening underwater? Because I need to know if Bolton can laugh. That would change how I feel about the fight. <laughs> this is a tough one. He can split himself into uh, all of his soldiers to fight Slattern. This is a really tough one. I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Bolton because he's smarter. He can form multiple versions of himself, and he can just laugh underwater as he pulls pieces of Slattern apart. Charles. Slattern. 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 I think the scale is everything here. Again, I, I just don't see Baltan's clamps doing enough. <laughs> they've, never, clamps. they've never been shown to be that particularly strong, for one thing. I think it's less about his lobster claw hands, because he's got, like, weapons inside of those claws. Mm-hmm. He can open that up and then fire a beam out of beams it. And the little, yeah. <laughs> this is brute strength and force versus elf shoes versus <laughs> elf shoes. That was exactly what I was going to say. That's not true, but I like it better than what I was going to say. So I'm just going to go with it. I have to say, I think Bolton as a monster alien who's been defeated by Ultraman, I don't think he'd really have a chance against Slattern. Although this seems like it was a pretty almost evenly matched. I love how we yeah, have five here close. for this. This is like perfect. Mm-hmm. This is fun. But Slattern wins. Ooh, you guys, the next battle is going to be awesome. <laughs> I don't exactly know why I think it's going to be so awesome because of how our last battle went, but Legion versus Daimajin battling over Dia dominance. <laughs> <laughs> There's what? no doubt about it. Like Legion's powerful. It's got a big energy weapon, strong, burrowing. 
Still fighting a god, though. Not immortal. Very clearly not immortal. We've got a god that can literally rain down lightning. Charles? (laughs) I don't know. I I have to lean towards the god. I mean, I think there's just too much power in that to go up against Legion. Legion doesn't stand a chance. And a vengeful god, too. Yeah. 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 For sure. Mm-hmm. And actually, you could even say, like, what if somebody called on Daimajin to help save their planet, basically, because of what Legion had done? Mm-hmm. Then he would yeah. have, like, reason for it. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. What do I, you guys think? Yeah, I think Daimajin's going to put the smack down on that Legion. I mean, mm-hmm. He's small. Indestructible, yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's still God. Man, unanimously, <laughs> Daimajin masters the, uh, the battle <laughs> against Legion. Unfortunately, this brings us to our very last bout of the evening, and it's actually something we have seen in the movies. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Actually, what's funny is out of all of the battles that have transpired in this Monster March Madness, this is the first one that's actually been from the movies, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, Gamera versus Iris. Well, if we <laughs> look this at round two? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. this would be round two. This is yeah. Not, yeah, we're not redoing or re, you know, just saying, oh, this is what happened in the movie. Obviously, Gamera has learned. I mean, he learns from his enemies. But so did so would Iris. Yeah. Seems smart. You think, you'd think, yeah. but I actually, I'm not so sure how smart Iris is. I mean, Iris has the ability to stab Gamera, but. When Iris stabbed Gamera in the hand and started sucking out his energy, I think that was just a serendipitous, like, "Ooh, sweet! I'm suck. I'm actually getting more powerful from this," as opposed to you know his standard, like, "I'm just going to suck the life." I out know of this, person. That this is going to work. <laughs> yeah, so I think that was like dumb luck on Iris's part. But then Gamera was able to like turn it. We around. never uh, said which Gamera this was. Oh, this is uh, Heisei. This is okay. going to be Heisei Gamera, yeah. So it's not Gamera the Brave. Not Gamera the Brave. <laughs> if it was Gamera the Brave, unfortunately, he Iris wouldn't have made it. He wouldn't have made it left past the last <laughs> round, yeah. <laughs> Brian and Rachel, what do you say? Uh, Gamera, I say. Yeah, it's yep. going to be Gamera. Yeah, I'm with Gamera, too. You sticking with the Guardian of the Universe? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Barely, I He's don't got even need to answer Gamera. So Gamera weapons. all the way. Yeah. Gamera wins. <laughs> This is awesome. I am loving Monster March Madness. And uh, once again, thank you to everyone who submitted their brackets. This is actually the last segment of this episode. We're going to be back with another March Madness segment or episode very soon. And uh, until then, we're just going to go ahead and close the show out. Thanks so much for all the listeners for submitting their homework and, again, their brackets. Thanks to these guys for sticking around and hanging out with me for many, many hours this evening. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed this. Make sure to check us out on KaijuCast.com. Check out our links to our social media websites, all that stuff. And we'll see you for the next episode. Jamata.